post-traumatic stress, the lack of effective treatment, and their search for healing. This is a crowdsourced event and tickets are currently available for purchase. There will be a brief Q&A following the film. Again, that's a screening of the film From Shock to Awe, A Journey of Hope and Transformation on Thursday, January 10th at 7 p.m. at Regal Cinemas Pioneer Place, 340 Southwest Morrison Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right-hand side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO listener members and support from Gazelle Consulting, providing HIPAA compliance and IT security services to businesses throughout Portland and across the West Coast, including HIPAA consulting, software, and risk assessments and trainings. More information is available online at gazelleconsulting.org. Flashpoints, we feature an encore performance of a speech by Miko Pellet, author of The General Sun, Journal of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. I'm Dennis Bernstein, all this straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. Uh, I'm so honored to be here uh, introducing Miko Pellet tonight, and thanks to Bob Baldock and Catherine and to KPFA for putting this all together. Six years ago, Miko Pellet wrote a blistering, deeply introspective account of his childhood as the son of an Israeli officer who participated in the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in the 1940s, and later as a high-ranking general in the 1967 war. His book, The General's Son, is what the great investigative reporter Cy Hirsch called a story of admiration and anger. It documents in searing and brilliant honesty Miko's transformation from a Zionist nationalist to a human rights activist and supporter of fundamental rights for Palestinians, including the right of return and the creation of a single secular state for all of its people in that land. Around the time that the first edition of his book came out in the fall of 2012, the US Supreme Court announced that it had decided to ignore the appeals of the Holy Land Five, the five Palestinian American men who headed the Holy Land Foundation and provided humanitarian aid to Palestinians as well as to people in the US. And they had been shut away in prisons for years already by that time. In a few minutes, I know that Miko will get into the details of that story, which are nothing less than shocking, but not surprising, given the, recent, the, recent, the racist history of this country. But in going through my own notes and articles that I and my colleagues at the Electronic Intifada had written about the Holy Land Five, I came across a little anecdote that we reported in October 2010. Then US Attorney General Eric Holder, who now appears on network late-night talk shows as a supposed voice of reason and integrity. The nostalgia for war criminals is quite a spectacle lately, isn't it? Holder personally awarded the entire local, state, and federal prosecution team involved in incarcerating the Holy Land Five with the second highest honor in the Justice Department, the Attorney General's Award for Distinguished Service. 
In prison, those men have been held in some of the harshest, most draconian conditions imaginable in places that human rights lawyers have called little Guantanamos because they house mostly Arab and Muslim men. As Miko points out in his book, Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land Foundation Five, he was so struck by the stories of these men, these leaders of a humanitarian charity, that he crisscrossed the country to visit all of them in these US dungeons. He meticulously detailed their histories, and he read through more than 20,000 pages of court documents to understand just how this injustice was carried out and maintained all these years. The story of these men, Miko writes, who have been wrongfully locked up in American prisons is not just their story, as all too many African Americans, Native Americans, and Arab and Muslim Americans know all too well. The story of the Holy Land Five is the connective tissue between the American prison system, the normalization of racist policies in the wake of 9-11, and of course, the waking nightmares that Palestinians have been forced to live through for more than 70 years. But Miko's book is not just the story of these five Palestinian men and what happened to them in the US. It's the story of their stories, of their families and their individual and collective histories from their childhoods in Palestine. They are the stories of dispossession and exile and the refugeehood they were forced to endure as Israel stole their lands, their homes, and their rights one by one by one, and as the United States encouraged, financed, and abetted Israel's crimes over and over and over again. Just this past week, if you've been following the news, and I wish I could turn it off most days, the man-made humanitarian crisis by Israeli design in Gaza has took yet another turn for the worse. The United Nations warned yesterday that funds to procure emergency fuel used to sustain essential services like hospitals and schools in Gaza have depleted and final stocks will be delivered this week. Then that's it. Government-run hospitals have enough supply for only a further 10 days to three weeks, depending on the institution. The UN said that, quote, services provided at hospitals, clinics, as well as sewage treatment, water, and sanitation facilities will cease. In the occupied West Bank, more homes were destroyed by Israeli soldiers this past week, and the Israeli Supreme Court just yesterday greenlit the government's plan to completely demolish the entire village of Khan al-Ahmar and move the Palestinians there to a garbage dump in order to grab more land for Jewish-only colonies. In addition, here, the Trump administration announced that it was not only cutting off all aid to UNRWA, the UN uh, Agency for Palestine Refugees, which is sure to plunge the most vulnerable Palestinian refugee communities into yet another crisis. But his most trusted advisor, Jared Kushner, that dead-eyed, swarmy slumlord of New York and Benjamin Netanyahu's close family friend, Kushner's work as a mercenary on behalf of the Israeli government and its lobby groups, his plan to strip 90% of the 7 million-plus Palestinian refugees of their refugee status is also moving ahead. Once again, the U.S. is acting as an arbiter, not ever, of peace and justice, but of continuing by all means and ways. Israel's settler colonialism and apartheid rewarding Israel and financing the punishing of Palestinians for their existence instead of holding Israel accountable for creating the refugee crisis in the first place. 
There is only one way that Palestinians should be rightfully stripped of their refugee status, and one way that UNRWA doesn't need to be funded to save lives in clinics, to educate children, or to provide food and shelter, and that would be to end the occupation and the racist apartheid system, and finally allow Palestinians to return to their lands and homes as guaranteed by international law, a law on the books for the last 70 years. Yes. Miko Pellet understands this and stands amongst the millions of people in Palestine and around the world and here tonight who are working for justice and freedom for Palestinians, whether from the dungeons of the U.S. prison system to the streets, to the campuses, to the refugee camps. We are so lucky he's with us tonight to talk about his books and his work to help shed a light on some of the most crucial issues of our time. Miko Pellet, thank you. All right. Well, thank you all for coming this evening. It's great to be back here in Berkeley and see so many uh, good friends. The, um, every, every time I come and I see a room full of people miles and miles and miles away from Palestine who are willing to take the time to listen and engage in conversation, uh, it revives my hope. And people always say, well, how do you keep going? How, is it you, how do you maintain hope? And it's very difficult to maintain hope because things are so, so severe. I just got back from Palestine 10 days ago. I was there for three weeks. I was there twice, actually, this summer. And um, even when things, even when you're celebrating something, there's always like, something in the background that uh, reminds you of how severe and how... Um, oppressive and how difficult things are in Palestine. So it's nice to see people engaged, nice to see people interested, nice to see people in so many different places who, are, who, want, to, who want to be part of this. Um, I think most of you probably know my little story, um, but just very, very briefly, as the title of my first book, The General Son, suggests, I come from a very Zionist family. My father was a general. And then I took what I call a journey of an Israeli in Palestine. And I think a lot about that part of the title of the book, A Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and what does that mean and why it's important. And I think it's important because it forces us to define Israel and to define Palestine. And also to understand what kind of a journey this is. You know, really, it's a journey, geographically very small and insignificant, but it's a journey from the sphere of the privileged oppressor, colonizer, into the sphere of the other, into the sphere of the oppressed and the colonized. That's basically what it is. And every time I go, every time I go to Palestine, I'm reminded of that. And I see more and more signs of that of how absolutely clear it is that you have one side that is clearly the oppressor and the colonizer, and one side that's the colonized, the indigenous people who are actually connected to the land and whose culture is connected to the land and who are so incredibly more free than any of the oppressors and the colonizers ever will be. 
It's really, really quite interesting. So the journey that I took from one sphere to the other, which is really, in many cases, just crossing the streets, um, allowed me to see that. And every time I go, I see it more and more and more clearly. And um, if there's one thing that Israelis hate to think about, hate to hear about themselves, is that they are colonizers, is that they are the oppressors. You know, especially if they don't live in the West Bank. Only the, only the Israelis that live in the West Bank are settlers. Only the Israelis who live in the West Bank are the oppressors. The rest of us, we're good, we're, we're okay. And I quite often like to remind, especially if they live in Tel Aviv, uh, that I like to remind them that they are occupiers and they are settlers and they are just as criminal as any Israelis who live anywhere in the country because there really is no difference between the different parts of the country. It's all Palestine and it's all occupied. So it's always a very, makes for a very interesting conversation, especially with Israelis who like to see themselves as progressive and left and so forth. But they won't give up that on the Zionists. They don't give up on the Zionism, which of course why, why we're still in this, in this mess. What I want to do today is I want to start talking about my second book, about injustice and that story. And then from there, I'll go back and talk about the larger picture of Palestine. And I think it's important to really take, take to heart and really, really understand just how connected, how connected things that happen here in the United States are to what is happening in Palestine. And the incredible influence, incredible, incredibly powerful influence that Israel has on the goings-on in this country. Um, and it's not just in politics. It's not just in culture. It's in the judiciary. And the discovery that I made as I was working on, on injustice is just how incredibly deep that influence, those tentacles have reached. The story of the Holy Land Foundation is really the story of five of the finest men you'll ever meet, five of the finest human beings you'll ever meet, um, who at the end of a very, very difficult journey ended up in federal prison, serving very long sentences in federal prison as uh, terrorists, as people who finance terrorism. And these are absolutely the finest, some of the finest people I've ever met. And if they were not Muslim, and if they were not Palestinians, they would not be in jail. If they were not Muslims, if they were not Palestinians, they would not be in jail today. And the only reason that they are is because of this very toxic influence that Israel has on every aspect of life here in America, to a point where it's, it's um, I'm surprised that Americans are not worried about this, not to say angry and outraged. So the Holy Land Foundation, by the way, how, is it, can I see a show of hands? Has anybody heard of the Holy Land Foundation before today? Okay, so people are aware. So it was the largest Muslim charity in America. And they came into being in the late 80s um, and um, began work with the idea that, the, you know, they came to this country, they started families, they had businesses, they got to a point in their lives where they felt it was time to give back. 
And so the Holy Land, and that is really the Holy Land Foundation emerged as a result of that. Um, and their focus was Palestine, but they did really good work in other areas too. Here in the United States, after 9-11, after the Oklahoma City bombing, during floods, tornadoes, earthquakes, they helped in places around the world where there were refugees. Wherever there was a need for relief, they were willing to be there. And over the years, they gained really a stellar reputation. At every point where they were raided by all the different agencies that rate relief organizations, they always came up at the top. They always received the highest ratings. Um, and they were, these were basically very dedicated, you know, people loving life, loving their families, loving their work. And it seems that the better they did, the worse it got for them. And they, of course, didn't realize this. And what I mean by that is that here in America, anything that's Palestinian,